This message was recorded during a Sunday celebration service at Cornerstone Church of Knoxville. Please turn in your Bible to the first letter of Peter, chapter 1. The title of the message this morning is Painful Yet Purposeful. And though our attention this morning is going to be devoted to verses 6 through 9, it would be most appropriate for us to begin reading in verse 1 so that we are aware of and affected by what precedes verses 6 through 9. J.I. Packer describes Scripture this way, that the, the truest and happiest description of Scripture is God preaching. So, I have the privilege to read Holy Scripture to you, to those I love. Listen carefully, because as I read Scripture, God is preaching to us. Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ to those who are elect exiles of the dispersion in Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia, according to the foreknowledge of God the Father, in the sanctification of the Spirit for obedience to Jesus Christ and for sprinkling with His blood, may grace and peace be multiplied to you. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to His great mercy, He has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you who by God's power are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. In this you rejoice. Though now, for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials, so that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes, though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Though you have not seen him, you love him. Though you do not now see him, you believe in him and rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory, obtaining the outcome of your faith, the salvation of your souls. In J.R.R. Tolkien's Lord of the Rings trilogy, Tolkien describes a scene where the young hobbit Pippin studies the face of the ancient wizard Gandalf. Tolkien writes, Pippin glanced in some wonder at the face now close beside his own. He saw at first only lines of care and sorrow, though as he looked more intently, he perceived that under all there was a great joy, a fountain of mirth, 
enough to set a kingdom laughing were it to gush forth. Tolkien insightfully and descriptively captured the depth and the breadth of emotions that characterized the wise old wizard. There were lines of sorrow, but under it all there was a great joy. One wonders if Mr. Tolkien wasn't inspired by our passage this morning, for here in Holy Scripture, Peter provides the original readers with a striking and vivid description of the depth and breadth of emotions that are meant to characterize the maturing Christian. For in verse 6, Peter references being grieved grieved by various trials. But did you notice? Oh, you must have noticed that this passage about trials is actually framed by the word rejoice in verses 6 and 8. So how is this possible? How is it possible to simultaneously grieve and rejoice? How is it possible to rejoice in the midst of the painful experience of trials? Peter informs us that a Christian can and will do the unthinkable. We can rejoice in our painful trials because, because we know something about the divine purpose for our trials. We can rejoice because we perceive the unseen hand of God working in and through our trials for our good and ultimately for His glory. Our outline is a simple one this morning. Point one, the painful reality of trials, verse six. Two, the good purpose of trials, verse seven. And finally, the sweet assurance in trials, verses eight and nine. First, the painful reality of trials. Verse six begins with a most appropriate exhortation for the Christian to rejoice in light of what Peter has previously communicated. In this you rejoice, in this, in what? Well, in the content of verses 3 through 5. So Peter is reaching back in verse 6 to the content of verses 3 to 5. And Peter is a direct, directing the attention of the original readers of this letter away from their difficult circumstances to the gracious action of God in causing them to be born again to a living hope for an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading that is kept in heaven for you. So God has not only prepared this inheritance they do not deserve, but he is keeping this inheritance. Verse 4, kept in heaven for you. Kept for you. If you are a Christian, this is kept for you. Kept for you by name. Kept for you by God himself. And not only is God himself keeping this inheritance for them, he is keeping them for this inheritance. And so we read in verse 5, who by God's power are being guarded. So God is keeping this inheritance in heaven for them and us, and he is keeping us on earth and in this life for this inheritance. Brothers and sisters, there is an inheritance waiting for the Christian that is imperishable, 
undefiled and unfading, and we are being kept by God himself through the gift of faith for that inheritance. And all this has been secured through and guaranteed by the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Brothers and sisters, this is one serious living hope. And in all this, and because of all this, the only appropriate response is to Rejoice! And by the way, that is the explanation for why the singing here each week has an unapologetic accent on rejoicing. If you want to know, if you're a guest and you want to know why the joint is jumping each and every Sunday, this is the explanation. The joint is jumping because of what we read in verses 3 through 5. The only appropriate response to what we read in verses 3 through 5, what we read about what God has done and what God has promised, the only appropriate response is to lift our voices and gladly rejoice. And then, did you notice? There's an abrupt change. Verse 6 is abrupt change in both content and mood that takes place in verse 6. Peter transitions from exhorting them to celebrate to identifying with their grief. Though now, for a little while, you have been grieved by various trials. And actually here we are reminded of the occasion of this letter, the purpose of this letter, the central motif of this letter. The original readers, the original recipients of this letter are suffering. They are suffering for their faith. They're being persecuted because they are Christians. They are elect exiles. They are being maligned in their Roman, Greco-Roman culture because of their identification with Christ and him crucified. They are being mistreated because of their proclamation of the gospel and their commitment to the ethical implications of the gospel. They were viewed in the Greco-Roman world as a threat to the community, not an asset to the community, a threat to the community because of the gospel. And they felt the effects of this persecution. Upon their conversion, they did not anticipate this persecution, but they were feeling the effects of this persecution for their faith in their family, in the workplace, and in their community. The suffering they were enduring for their faith was painful, and they are a reminder to us that Christians suffer for their faith, and when they suffer, Christians grieve, and Christians grieve when they suffer because suffering is painful. When you become a Christian, you will suffer for your faith. College students, what a joy it is for me to be here when you are welcome back. Let me just prepare you for what awaits you. Oh, I I know God has much in store, the advance of the gospel through the students representing this particular church. But I'd also want you to know, your pastors would want you to know, you are going into tomorrow, you are going into a hostile environment to the gospel. You are viewed as a threat, not an asset. And you will suffer to differing degrees, in differing ways, you will suffer for your faith. And when you do, it will be painful. Your relationship with God doesn't spare you for, from suffering, and our knowledge of God doesn't spare us from feeling the pain of suffering. When I go to the dentist, and I never want to go to the dentist, I, I have two simple requests of the dentist. Request number one, no talking, please, 
when you are, <laughs> no talking when your hands are in my mouth holding sharp instruments. Please, no talking. Um, because I'm not here to chat, okay? And I'm really not here to develop a friendship. I mean, I, it's, it's fine if, if, we, if we're gonna have a friendship, but that, when I'm in this chair, I want you to be all business. I want very soft music playing in the background. I want world-class diplomas, diplomas just circulating all around the room. Um, and, and, and there's just no reason to talk. Got any questions for me? You can just ask me afterwards because I don't want you to slip at all. I don't want you to make any mistake. Those instruments are sharp. And you know what? When your hands are out and your car entrance, I have a hard time answering your questions. So, so let's talk later. Second request, I want the legal limit of anesthesia. <laughs> yeah, I do. Oh, I'd say it just this way. If possible, numb my whole head, my entire head. Just <laughs> numb it. Mr. Mahaney, we're only cleaning your teeth today. Doesn't change a thing. <laughs> Put me out. I just, I don't want to be here. Um, this happens every time. It has happened for decades. Every time, at some point, the dentist is saying, Mr. Mahaney, is, is, is anything painful? Uh, no, you know, I have to respond, no. Well, okay, I just noticed you're gripping the, the armrest. Oh yeah, well that's in pre preparation for what I think is gonna happen. See, it's just that, so that's me. I want the legal limit of anesthesia. I don't go in there and say, you know what? Um, ever since I've been converted, I don't feel pain anymore. So I don't need any anesthesia. No, you can just tooth extract, whatever you wanna do. It doesn't matter, I'm a Christian now. And so because I'm a Christian, I don't feel pain anymore. No. Trials are painful. Trials are painful for a Christian. Christians grieve. There is no spiritual anesthesia. And Peter is a wise and compassionate pastor. Pastor here, he acknowledges the reality of their grief in the midst of their trial, and so must we. So must we whenever we encounter someone who is enduring trials and suffering for their faith. It is, it is wise and compassionate for us to first grieve with someone who is enduring trials before we exhort them to rejoice. And let us recognize that even when we rejoice in suffering, this doesn't eliminate the pain and the grief that accompanies suffering. We are rejoicing, listen, we are rejoicing within the experience, within the painful experience of suffering, not divorced from the painful experience of suffering, and our rejoicing doesn't eliminate the pain of suffering. So we want to be, we want to be a church where someone is comfortable grieving when they suffer and not reluctant to grieve or embarrassed to grieve. We don't want anyone to think this morning it's immature to grieve. And if, well, if that individual would only rejoice, then they would stop grieving. And let me just say, this church is a place where those grieving because of trials and suffering are welcomed and comforted. And for that, your pastors are to be commended and they are deeply grateful. Listen, if you look carefully at the face of a mature Christian, here's what you'll see. You will see lines of sorrow. You will see lines of sorrow on their face because trials are painful. And the mature Christian is quite familiar with grief. But notice... 
Notice that after compassionately acknowledging the reality of their grief, Peter wisely strengthens their heart by informing them there is a divinely designed good purpose for their trial, and God is at work even in their anguish. So for those among the original readers who are wondering why they didn't anticipate this upon their conversion, they did not anticipate this onslaught of persecution. So for those among the original readers who are saying, why, why is this happening? We are now doing good and suffering for it. Why are we suffering for our faith? Well, Peter explains why in order to fortify their soul in the midst of suffering, which brings us to point two, the good purpose of trials. Verse seven. So after identifying with their grief, Peter imparts hope by drawing their attention to the purpose of God for their trials. He informs them there is a divine design to their distress. There is an unseen hand at work. And he wants them to perceive the unseen hand of God at work in their suffering, not just their pain. So notice the phrase at the outset of verse 7, so that... So that in this you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials, so that. So their trials are necessary and they are purposeful. And Peter articulates why these painful trials are necessary and purposeful, so that the genuine, the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. And folks, my friends, this, this is heart-changing, perspective-altering, life-transforming stuff we are contemplating this morning. Yes, trials are painful. Yes, they are. But They are also purposeful. There is no such thing as pointless, painful suffering for the Christian. So we are not exempt from the pain of trials, and in this case, persecution for our faith in particular. But even though trials are personally painful, in and through trials, listen, in and through trials, something else is going down. Something else is happening. And Peter wants us to know what's happening. Our faith is strengthened and grows if we respond appropriately to trials and don't waste our trials. So Peter draws their attention to the great value of this gift of faith. This gift of faith, this great value to them and the great value of this gift in the sight of God. Peter is beckoning them. Look beyond your circumstances. Look beyond those who are opposing you because of the gospel. They must, Peter says, you must perceive the hand of God and not simply the hostility of man. And you must perceive the purpose of God for their faith and not be solely preoccupied with their pain. A Christian must perceive in the midst of trial and suffering that there is an unseen hand at work in a trial revealing and refining faith. So it's going down. Unseen hand is at work, revealing and refining faith. And Peter likens their trial to the purification of gold. So he is informing them and each of us as we listen in this morning of of really of a different economy. This is the economy of God where our faith is more valuable than gold. God, God values this faith more than man values gold and God values this faith more than our present comfort. Approved faith is more valuable than gold, a commodity that obviously man values big time. 
But the genuineness of faith, like gold, is revealed and refined through fire. So suffering is a crucible for revealing and refining faith. Suffering reveals the genuineness of faith. Listen, God intends for this suffering, God intends for this testing to be a most encouraging experience for each and every Christian. Because as you respond appropriately to a trial in general or persecution in particular, you will come out the other side of a trial realizing that your faith is the real deal and not fake stuff. This experience is more precious than gold that perishes. The faith that doesn't endure when persecuted isn't genuine. Persevering when persecuted for one's faith, it's a means of revealing the genuineness of one's faith. I can still vividly remember immediately following my conversion as I announced to friends I cared for and about the same gospel that had transformed my life, anticipating that they would be <laughs> responsive. I, I mean, I just, I, I had... I had not only a zeal, I had not only a care for them, I had unrealistic expectations about their response. My, my announcement to them was first and foremost the gospel in, in all my uh, theological limitations, but I knew the gospel. And then I also knew that having been converted from the drug culture, what I just experienced, the forgiveness of all my sins, now free from fear of the wrath of God, what I experienced about the satisfying grace of God in my life was superior to any sin I had previously indulged in. And so I thought this announcement of gospel and the superiority of grace would find resonance in the hearts of all my friends. Well, it found resonance in the hearts of some by the grace of God. But some, it decidedly did not. And they pushed back. And they pushed back hard. And they opposed. And they ridiculed. And they persecuted. And I was perplexed. Didn't have a church like this, pastors like you have, who could help me. I was alone. And I was perplexed in my aloneness. But in my aloneness, and though ignorant of this passage, here is something I realized in that moment, and the, the memory remains vivid to this day. I realized I have definitely been converted. I have definitely been converted because those were the people whose approval I previously sought. Those were the people whose approval I previously lived for. They no longer approve of me. They are now ridiculing me, and I am not drawn back into their world of sin at all. What is the explanation for that? I, by the grace of God, have had a heart transformation. I am genuine. This is a genuine faith. God has given me a gift of faith. There is a genuineness to it, and that's the effect of suffering and trial, you realize that what's been placed in you through the new birth is a heavenly gift, and it is sustaining you in the midst of pain and grief, for you have been transformed, and you now live for someone else. So God intends for this testing to, to be an encouraging experience where we realize our faith is genuine. So it reveals faith, but then it does more. It also refines our faith. This is how our faith is purified. 
It's really similar to the purification of gold through fire. So just as the fire removes impurities from gold, trials reveal and remove impurities from our hearts. So the fire doesn't destroy the gold, it just destroys the impurity. So the fire of trials and persecution doesn't destroy our faith, it just reveals and removes the impurities from our hearts and lives, the impurities of sin and idolatry. So the fire of trial and persecution does not destroy the faith of the Christian, but instead reveals the genuineness of faith and removes impurities from our hearts and refines us. And Peter is assuring them that there is no need to fear this fire. No need to fear this fire. No need to fear what's going on in their lives and going down in their lives because it's divinely designed to reveal the genuineness of their faith and refine their faith. There's an unseen hand at work in the midst of the fire. So he's given them a biblical perspective, help them to understand what's going down in their lives. So their persecution and associated grief doesn't obscure their awareness that God is wonderfully at work in their trials. And then did you notice Peter, he, he draws their attention to the ultimate purpose of suffering. It's like he presses fast forward to the day of Christ's appearing. He anticipates the outcome of all these trials on the last day so that the genuineness of your faith may be found, listen, to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. So Peter wants, he directs, now he directs their attention away from the trial, away from the pain associated with the trial, away from even the immediate purpose of the trial to the eventual result and effect of the trial, that future day, the revelation of Jesus Christ. He wants that day to work back to this day in their lives and have a transforming effect on their lives because on that day, those who have faithfully endured will bring praise and honor and glory to Jesus Christ himself. And brothers and sisters, it doesn't get any better than that. So presently they are being maligned. Presently they are being mistreated. But oh my, when the Lord returns, boys and girls, everything is going to be reversed and everything changes upon his return So, endure the difficult and painful present in light of this glorious future. This stuff, it'll change your life. It will. I've test-driven it. It will change your life in relation to trials. When you you perceive the good purpose of suffering, then, then though painful, you will embrace suffering rather than fear suffering or do all you can to avoid suffering, because suffering has a good purpose. Oh, and one more thing. Suffering has an expiration date. Must not overlook that sweet and comforting phrase in verse six, though now for a little while. Little while, little while, oh, that's so sweet for those suffering this morning. May you be freshly comforted by that phrase. Your suffering, my suffering, our suffering, it's for a little while. According to the heavenly calendar, our suffering is for a little while compared to eternity future and all that God has planned for us in the future. All our trials here, all our suffering here, all the pain we experience here is brief. 
when compared to eternity future and all that God has planned. Oh, what a comfort it is. What a comfort it is to know that there is an end date to suffering. What a comfort it is to know as well that there is a purpose and a glorious future for our suffering. Which brings us to point three, the sweet assurance of trials, verses eight and nine. And just notice, I want you to notice This is a wise and caring pastor. I've spent a lot of time with Peter. I feel like I've gotten to know him personally. I've studied this letter, not only to apply it to my own life and serve the church I love from this letter, but I've also studied it. I want want to be schooled by this man in how to pastor the people I love. It's one of the things I've said to the church. We're we're going to take as long as possible in 1 Peter so this guy can pastor us as long as possible. I want to sit at his feet and learn how to pastor people from studying him. So notice this wise and caring pastor. He now ceases to exhort them and instead he commends them and he draws attention to the genuineness of their faith. So he makes a turn and now he's identifying evidences of grace in their life. He turns their attention from the anticipated return of Christ to their present love of Christ, faith in Christ, and rejoicing in Christ. He is affirming, he is affirming that they haven't wasted their trials or sorrows. Their faith is genuine and their faith has been refined. Their suffering has made them better and not worse. In his excellent book, Walking with God Through Pain and Suffering, author Tim Keller insightfully writes, suffering will only make us better rather than worse if during it we teach ourselves to love God better than before. Well, that's what the original readers did. And this is obvious in verse 8 as Peter draws attention to this love. Though you have not seen him, you love him. And in his commentary on 1 Peter, Tom Schreiner observes, their sufferings have not made them morose and miserable. They are filled with love for Jesus Christ. He is precious and lovely to them. They haven't wasted their trials. They haven't wasted their suffering. This this is what matters the most in their suffering and and sorrow. What matters the most is is not what they can see. What matters the most is not their enemies and the hostility and the opposition and the trials and the pain. No, what matters the most, what matters the most, what matters the most is who they love who they love, the one they cannot see. So this is an evidence of the genuineness of their faith, and this will sustain them in suffering. And by the way, how meaningful, oh my, how meaningful this must have been for them, the original readers, to hear this from Peter. Hear from Peter, the one whom Jesus asked, do you love me? Says to them, You love him. And how meaningful it must have been for them to read and realize that their lack of personal, physical contact with the incarnate Lord Jesus Christ did not leave them at a spiritual disadvantage in knowing him or loving him. Their love for Christ was as genuine as Peter's because it was the fruit and effect of the same Holy Spirit. So the man writing this letter, he had some serious memories. He had vivid memories. He had memories of his experience with the incarnate Son of God that no doubt he vividly remembered 
as he penned this letter. He remembered and could easily call to mind Jesus calming the life-threatening storm with a word. He remembered Jesus casting out a legion of demons from the garrisoned demoniac. He remembered Jesus healing blind Bartimaeus. He remembered Jesus being transfigured before his eyes. He remembered Jesus in Gethsemane. And he remembered Jesus looking at him after he denied him. And he remembered Jesus sitting across from him at breakfast after the resurrection. But Peter is aware that it was not his physical proximity or observation of Jesus or his personal interaction with Jesus that explains his perception of Jesus or his love for Jesus because he no doubt still vividly remembered when Jesus asked the disciples at one point, who do you say that I am? Peter answered, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. Jesus immediately said to him, blessed are you, Simon, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. So Peter's perception of the unique identity of Jesus wasn't the fruit and effect of human observation, but of divine revelation. So here's what he's saying to these Gentiles, freshly converted Gentiles, the original recipients of this letter. He is saying to them, even though you weren't with him like I was with him physically, even though you did not see the incarnate Son of God, you have been given the same perception as to his unique identity by the Holy Spirit through the proclamation of the gospel by eyewitnesses like Peter and the other apostles. He is saying to them, you don't have to see him with physical eyes in order to know him and to love him. And oh my, this was no doubt meaningful to them. And it, it should be no less meaningful to us here this morning by the work of the Holy Spirit and through the proclamation of the gospel. Oh, it's possible to see, to see what you cannot see. It's possible to love whom you cannot see. Our friend John Piper helpfully explains this. How do you love him? and believe in him if you can't see him? Well, I think the answer to that question is that even though we don't see him face to face with our physical eyes, we do see him in another way that is even more important. In the preaching of the gospel, Christ can be seen in a way that is more important than seeing him physically. Hundreds of people in Jesus' lifetime saw him physically and never really saw him. There is a seeing that is infinitely more important than seeing with the eyes. And if you read the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John with an openness to Christ, you can see the true glory of Christ far more clearly than most of the people who knew him on earth could see him. I love this uh, next sentence. The Gospels are better than being there. Though you do not see him now, yet in another sense you do see him far better than thousands who saw him face to face. And because you see him with the eyes of the heart, you love him and you trust him and you rejoice with joy inexpressible and full of glory. This is true Christianity. Well said, it is indeed. So 
It was not necessary to have been with Jesus in Galilee in order to know him and love him. Is that some sweet news? That is some sweet news for us this morning. Sweet news for the original readers of this letter. And though they were being opposed for their faith, the genuineness of their faith was evident. How? How is it evident? Well, they loved him. They loved him who they did not see. And the genuineness of their relationship with Christ was evident by their faith in him that brought them into vital union with him. And the genuineness of their faith was evident for in the midst of a difficult and painful trial, they rejoiced, they, listen, they rejoiced with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory. Joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory. Okay, so how does one describe joy that is inexpressible? Well, one doesn't, for inexpressible joy defies description. In other words, it's a joy unlike any other earthly joy that defies description because the language actually hints of a heavenly joy. A heavenly joy, a joy that is impossible for us to describe. And that, listen, each and every Christian experiences this foretaste of heavenly joy, even in the midst of persecution and trial and sorrow and grief. Here's what you discover. Oh my, happy, unexpected discovery in the midst of the fire. You realize you love him. You believe in him. And you rejoice in him, not simply for the earthly benefits he provides, but because he is altogether lovely and glorious. So in the midst of painful trials, we love him. We believe in him. We rejoice in him. And we taste a heavenly joy that, well, if you came up to me after the meeting and said, could you elaborate on it? Could you describe it? No. I can't do it. I'm sorry. We're just encountering not only the limitations of this ordinary preacher with an average intelligence, we're talking about heavenly realities. It's inexpressible. And then Peter and that final sentence draws their attention back again to that all-important final day. Obtaining the outcome of your faith, the salvation of your souls. It's, it's, it's just a phrase that really describes the entirety of God's saving activity in their lives. And by the way, this phrase, your souls, is, did you notice throughout how peppered throughout is Peter just making it personal, applying it to them, you, your, your souls. It's just making all of these heavenly realities very personal for the readers and God intends for Christians today to read this in the same way. Finally, sermon, wouldn't, sermon would not be complete without just drawing your attention to this point because this passage isn't, isn't, doesn't just inform us that Christians love him even in the midst of painful trials. No, this passage is a reminder of why we love him for this passage reminds us of the difference the difference his suffering made in our suffering the difference his suffering made for our suffering our suffering your christian your suffering it's brief your suffering is brief and it is a part of god's good purpose for our lives suffering is brief good purpose reveal our faith the genuineness of it refine it like gold and listen, oh my, 
because of his substitutionary sacrifice on the cross for our sins. Brothers and sisters, if you are a Christian, the only fire you will experience is the refining fire of our good and loving heavenly Father. Those who pass through the refiner's fire in this light are those who have been saved from hell's fire in the life to come. And they are saved from hell's fire because Jesus, when he hung, suspended between heaven and earth, our sin-bearing, wrath-absorbing Savior was receiving the penalty that we deserved for our sin. He was experiencing the fire of hell as the just judgment of God upon sinners like you and me. And he was exhausting that fire and satisfying that wrath so that all those who turn from their sins and trust in the Savior for the forgiveness of sins will know only the refining fire for good purpose in this life and will be freed from hell's fire eternally in the life to come, instead experiencing heavenly joy. Why do we love him? That's why we love him. We love him because of what happened on a hill called Calvary for sinners like you and me. Not love him? Oh my. We will love him for eternity. The lamb seated on the throne. Scars. Visible. Reminders throughout eternity of what he did on a hill called Calvary so that we might escape the just judgment of God and instead know the forgiveness of God and the adoption of God because we have been, as Peter said at the outset, sprinkled with his blood. If you're a Christian, you've been sprinkled with his blood. What does that mean? Well, it means you've been spared the fire of hell. That's what it means. And that, that phrase, listen, that phrase at the revelation of Jesus Christ, listen, just want to have a brief interaction with my non-Christian friends. My, my non-Christian friends who are here this morning, I am so glad you are here. Oh my, honored you would be here this morning. I believe the Lord wants to make eye contact with you in this sermon through this passage. And that phrase, at the revelation of Jesus Christ, listen, if you're a non-Christian this morning, that phrase, at the revelation of Jesus Christ, should strike fear in your heart. Can't soften this. Can't soften this. Wouldn't soften this. Wouldn't serve you if I soften this. It should strike fear into the heart of a non-Christian because if you haven't trusted in the death of Christ for your sins, that day, the revelation of Jesus Christ, that day is a day you should fear because if you don't trust in Christ as your savior from sin, then you on that day will justly pay for your sin against God for eternity in hell. Can't soften that. Oh, but my Christian friend, my non-Christian friend, here's what I wanna add to that because that's not the gospel. No, the gospel is flee, my non-Christian friend, run now. 
Do not be a dope. Do not put this off a moment longer. Flee from your sin. Flee from your sin because it has deceived you. Flee from your sin because it doesn't deliver as advertised. Flee from your sin because in your sin you have offended God. And flee from your sin because God in his kindness has sent his only son who was innocent to suffer in the place of sinners like you and me so that you and I today might be forgiven of all our sins and freed from fear of future wrath as we turn from our sins and flee to him and trust in him for the forgiveness of sins. I beg you, my non-Christian friend, do it now. You will never regret it and it will transform your life. There's a room full of people here who can testify to that. And then finally, for my Christian friends, as we approach that day, the revelation of Jesus Christ, wow, we can approach that day with confidence. Why, how can I approach that? Well, here's the only reason I can and you can approach that day with confidence, because we've been sprinkled with his blood. I don't approach that day with confidence because of sanctification in my own life, holiness that I had attained to. Any merit, no, 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 no. I can approach that revelation with confidence because I have been sprinkled with his blood and on that day he will bring to an end all suffering for the Christian. And until then, you should be able to recognize the face of an elect exile when you meet one. There will be lines of sorrow from trials on their face. But if you look carefully, and if you look intently, you will see that underneath is a great joy. A fountain of mirth, listen, enough to set a kingdom laughing were it to gush forth because he or she perceives wise and unseen hand of God, perceives the good purpose of God, even in painful trials. You'll perceive joy because that individual loves him who died for them. Let's pray. Father, how kind of you to address us. How kind of you to come. You've been listening to a message recorded during a Sunday celebration service at Cornerstone Church of Knoxville. To find out more about Cornerstone Church of Knoxville, visit us on the web at www.cornerstonechurchofknoxville.com or call our church office at 865-694-4356. We'd love to have you join us in celebrating God's grace and pursuing God's purpose.